I said, empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. It's about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. Join movement expert Aaron Alexander as he dives into the minds of the foremost innovative healthcare thinkers and movement masters on their approach to optimal health and wellness. Align Podcast. Oh, ooh, ah, uh, e, ah, ooh. <laughs> uh, sorry about that. I am attempting to find my optimum pitch of voice because today on this show called the line podcast with your host my Aaron Alexander I got to speak to Mr. Nick Morgan Nick is a master or an expert on body language and how the way that we present ourselves with our voice with our carriage of our bodies with our handshakes with how we dress how we act all that impacts the way that we feel about ourselves and the way that others perceive us with all of my random sound effects and ups and downs and eeps and ups and ups with the way that I'm speaking to you right now probably find me pretty annoying and Nick Morgan would be very disappointed with me. In this conversation, we got into how to defuse an argument. We got into how to shake somebody's hand. We got into how to deliver a fantastic presentation, how to spot somebody that's lying. We got into everything. Uh, there, it turns out there's a pitch at which your voice sounds the richest, most authoritative, the most commanding, the most confident. And that's the big mistake that most of us make. We're thinking about so many things that we're not just focused on that particular interview or that particular speech, something that we're trying to... It was such a fantastic conversation. I know that you guys will enjoy it. Um, please and thank you for leaving a comment in iTunes, reviews and shares and subscription. So, so valuable. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. This show cannot do it without your support. So thank you ahead of time. And check out the website, aligntherapy.com, A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you will find the blog. You will find hundreds of absolutely free videos on self-care and functional movement and and more you will find the self-care kit you will find online coaching online courses and just a lot of very very valuable information on how to live fantastically in your body so thank you so much for tuning in here we go back to our conversation with mr nick morgan align podcast so, Nick Morgan, thank you so much for coming on. I just finished your book up this week, and I had such a great time reading it. Um, it is all about body language and how we carry ourselves and how that impacts the way that people feel about us and, in turn, how we feel about ourselves, or at least that's how I perceive it. Um, I want to start off. You have a really interesting story in there and how you first started off getting really intrigued by body language. Maybe it wasn't the very first time, but there was a pretty impactful story with you in regards to finding out some information about your father, and but not necessarily through words. I'd be curious if you'd be able to kind of like take us through that experience of just that whole story and then just how that kind of shifted your direction of uh, perception of body language. Yeah, sure. So I was 17 and I had to get a present for my dad for Christmas like you do and, and and I got a book which was just published at the time by a famous British writer named E.M. Forster and this book had been embargoed for the 50 years since his death 
because it was a uh, a novel, but a, a heavily autobiographical novel about his homosexuality, which was illegal in the day uh, in England where he lived. And so he wanted to keep it a secret then. But 50 years after his death, it was time to be published. Um, and so the novel had just come out. And I was aware of this backstory, but I wasn't really thinking about it, uh, consciously anyway. And I thought, Ian Forster, great writer, I'll get the book for my dad, he'll be happy. So I did, wrapped it up, put it under the tree. And when he opened it up, he gave me this funny look, just for a second. It can't have lasted more than half a second. And in that moment, this wheel turned in my head, and I said, oh my God, my dad is gay. And I just just realized it then. Well, he didn't come out to me for 10 years after that. Um, and I was the first person he, he came out to. He called me up um, and uh, he said, come and stay with me for the weekend. There's this story I need to tell you, this thing I need to tell you that's really important. And, and so we're going for a walk in the woods, which is what we do in our family whenever we have something important to say. We go for a walk. So we're walking and he's hemming and hawing and he can't bring himself to say it. And finally I go, Dad, I know you're gay. Get over it. It's no big deal. <laughs> and he says, how did you know? And I said, that story, that look you gave me, I told him the story, that look you gave me 10 years ago. And I suddenly realized how crazy that sounded. Like, he didn't remember the look at all. Right. Uh, and So it, it had meant nothing to him at the time. Uh, and he hadn't realized how much he had told me with that look back in the day. Um, and so it hit me that body language has enormous power to reveal things to people, especially people that you know well. But the more you know about body language, the more you reveal, the more you realize that we reveal things to each other all the time, even if we don't know each other very well. Right. Uh, uh, but uh, the, the enormous power that we have to tell each other a whole lifetime of secrecy in just a glance was extraordinary to me. And I thought, I have to understand that better. Yeah. And I think along with that, it's so easy to get in the way of yourself with your perception of you know what the right decision is or whether someone's telling the truth or not, or whether you should do something or not do something, jump or don't jump. You know, it's like our unconscious mind is so immensely powerful in comparison to our conscious mind. You know, but our conscious mind is so much more bossy, you know, and, we're, and so many people, you know, we're like practically governed by this little, in, in the book, you call it the cat brain. Or no, no, the cat brain refers to, to your belly, which is the mm -hmm. amount of like neurons or the, the size of the brain essentially of, of uh, relating the cat to what you have going on in your, in your stomach. Right. But, um, one of the things you mentioned in there is, is uh, there's 10, I believe it's 10 million neurons for every one, 10 million unconscious neurons for every one conscious neuron that we have in our, in our yeah, system. It's, a, it's about 11 million, 11 um, million, uh, 11 million um, uh, bits per second of information that we can um, analyze, uh, deal with, handle in our unconscious minds, whereas we can only handle 40 bits of information a second with our conscious minds. Right. So the unconscious mind is just, like you say, this big, powerful machine that's going all the time. It's taking in enormous amounts of information about the world around us, about the people around us. It's analyzing that, and mostly it's keeping it to itself. We're not in touch with that. By definition, it's our unconscious mind. And so it feeds us 
little bits. It gives us hunches. It gives us intuition. It gives us a queasy feeling in our stomach or it gives us a funny feeling that we should be getting something that we're not. But it doesn't have um, a direct conduit, if you will, to our conscious mind. And then to the rest of your point, our unconscious mind is is busy making us self-conscious, keeping us out of the moment, keeping us from being real, thinking, what are people thinking about me, rather than just just being there in the moment and analyzing the data and saying, this is what's going on. Right. So I'm curious, from your perspective, because you've obviously spent quite a bit of time diving into this, what, how do people get out of their own way and allow that super system that is your unconscious truth you know i think that if you if you you know it's like we've been saying it for years you know follow your gut you know and that gets into mm -hmm. the cat brain thing you know it's like follow your gut instinct because that is your subconscious mind you know that initial instinct of ooh i shouldn't be here right now you're mm -hmm. right <laughs> you know it's yeah, time to go right. you yeah. know or this is exactly where i should be at. how how do you coach people along with with getting out of their own way yeah you've got to start listening to that brain, that other brain, the subconscious, the unconscious mind, you've got to start talking to it and you've got to start listening to the answers. And that does take time. It's we're, we're out of practice with that, most of us. We don't, we don't easily have that conversation going. So, for example, you're getting ready to go into a meeting, let's say a business meeting or a social meeting, and you're, and you're curious as to whether these people are telling you the truth or lying or not. That's a very reasonable question you might have in a given situation. And so uh, you need to ask your unconscious mind, hey, are these people lying or are they telling the truth? And then you need to wait for the answer. And with time, you get a lot better about reading those little signals that the unconscious mind tells you. But it does take practice. You do have to start a conversation. It's not going to start talking to you. Uh, unless you're willing to listen to it. <laughs> right. And so that's one of the things, one of the, the steps or, or tips that you put in the book is actually asking yourself binary questions as you're, in, you know, if you, if you have a question, you know, of, is this person lying to me? Is this, you know, whatever your question may be, literally, you know, quieting down a little bit and going in and asking yourself a yes, no question in regards to that. Is that something that you would suggest people start off doing and eventually it just becomes like normal practice if you don't actually need to ask the question, it just kind of comes to you? Or is that something that you still do? It's something you get better at with practice. You still need to pose the question. You need to have it in mind, obviously. Otherwise, it's not going to necessarily just bubble up without asking. But usually, you know, in any given situation, if, if anything is at stake, you know what you care about in that situation. You, you know, like, who's in charge here might be a question that you'd have. Or is this person lying or telling the truth? Or does this person like me or not? Uh, is this person uh, being straight with me or not? I mean, th those are the kind of questions that are pretty predictable that we, that we have in, in given social and business situations. So um, once you get the hang of asking those questions of your unconscious mind, it gets easier and easier. You, you don't need to prep hard for it. You can just suddenly start paying attention to that. Right. But it does take practice. Like I say, it's not something I wouldn't bet the farm. I wouldn't go play poker with somebody and ask yourself, is he bluffing or not? Right. And, and bet your life savings on it without a whole lot of practice. Right. I'm curious if, so before, so for example, before I get on an interview with somebody or before I do a public speaking event or something like that, I have a like, long, long list of all these traditions and ceremonies that I go through. And I mean, it's nothing too out there, but it's like, 
I'll do, I'll go through and express my vocal cords and I'll blah, you know, and like really try and warm up that whole system there. You know, I think oftentimes people go into these situations and they're underprepared, you know, and they think like, ah, I'll wing it. You know, it's like, and for some people winging it, you know, that might work out for you. But for the majority, the vast majority, really going into a situation with a lot of preparation allows you that freedom to actually express yourself from a genuine place of confidence. You know, and that's what a big thing of your book is, is being able to express confident signals, open signals, you know, let people know that you are in charge. You've got this. Is there something that you do before specifically you do before you do public speaking events or interviews or anything like that? Yeah, I, when I have uh, an important public speaking event, I have several things like you, it sounds like, that I go through. So I have a, a mental preparation. I will have prepared a statement that I'm saying to myself uh, uh, that ties into visualizing how it's going to go. So I spend a lot of time thinking about it beforehand, working out the plan. I got this originally from uh, Olympic sports uh, people who uh, they're getting ready to do a run downhill on their skis. There's a huge amount of uh, preparation involved, right? It, it, you can't just get at the top of the mountain and go shooting down and succeed and get that gold medal. It's not going to work. You have to practice. And you have to have a mental image of how it's going to go. So that's a big deal with me is having the mental image. And then, and, and then like you, I do vocal warm-ups because you're absolutely right. You can't just expect your your voice to uh, to work right out of the box suddenly uh, under a lot of pressure any more than you'd go run a marathon without warming up uh, your legs and your uh, whatever muscles are involved so it's all about the preparation and what was the thing that you had mentioned in the book about finding your maximum resonance point Can you talk about that a little bit of like how someone really figures out like what is my optimal voice <laughs> Yeah, that's incredibly important. The research on that is absolutely fascinating. It, it turns out that at the right pitch, and everybody's is different because it's relative to your vocal range, not to some absolute thing, but to, to, to your voice um, and your vocal range, and everybody's is slightly different. Uh, there, it turns out there's a pitch at which your voice sounds the richest, most authoritative, the most commanding, the most confident. And what happens is when we get nervous, our vocal cords constrict and we tend to push the voice up higher and our voices get higher and higher as we get nervous and more and more nervous. And, it, and you know, it, I doesn't sound like I'm in charge anymore up here, right? It's just, uh, that's not good. So uh, if you think about it in, at a common sense level, it's very intuitive. What happens if somebody panics, let's say a parent sees a young child running across the street about to run in front of a car, they're going to scream out, stop, right? Which way is their voice going to go? It's going to go up. Right. When people panic, their voices go up. And so when people uh, are calm and in command, their voices come down toward the lower end of their range. So it turns out we can identify very precisely where that maximum point of resonance for you is um, and, and anybody else by uh, coming up a quarter of the way from the bottom end of your range, that's the point at which your voice sounds most in control, uh, least like somebody who's panicking. Is, can people do that at home right now, find their, max, their, their maximum resonance point? Yeah, sure. If you have a piano, it's even easier. Uh, if you don't, then Google keyboard on, on your computer. But you wanna, what you want to do is um, match pitches 
and find the lowest note you can comfortably hum. So hum down, way down there, as low as you can go. And then go up as high as you can go, way up here. And then count up the number of notes that that spans on the Google, key, on the virtual keyboard. And then come up a quarter of the way from the bottom, and that's your pitch. Okay, cool. And as far as when you are doing your presentation, you know, can you pick out like a couple really important points that we should be paying attention to with our body language that could like make or break our presentation? Sure. The first and most important thing to do is to be open. Uh, the, what happens when we stand up in front of people to give a presentation is we feel self-conscious naturally. We feel exposed. That's, that's human nature. Uh, for a lot of people, it goes back to the first time when they were a young kid and they had to give a presentation to their class in school and they felt exposed to all those other kids. And, and, and what happens when you do that is you tend to close up your body language. So you uh, clasp your hands and you hold them in front of your stomach or if you're really, really uh, uh, amateur, you might fold your arms. I'm trying to do it on camera here, but uh, uh, you might fold your arms. Uh, you might clasp your hands. You do things to protect yourself. And so what you need to do is the opposite. And it doesn't feel natural, but you need to open up. You need to open up your hands so that you can say, uh, in effect, with your unconscious um, body language. I am open to you, the audience. And so you can trust me. You can prepare yourself to, to hear from me. You can believe what I say. If, if you close off, if your body language is insecure and defensive, then they're not going to trust you. Why should they? Anybody standing up in front of you who is uh, defensive or insecure is naturally going to trigger alarm bells in your mind. So that's what you want to avoid is, is uh, triggering off alarms in your audience's mind. Instead, you want them to relax. You want them to feel comfortable and safe so you can say, yeah, we can communicate here. We can trust each other. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's so apparent. I think that you know, it's really great to read a book like yours or you know, to be able to see this information written out because I think this information, like so much information, it's nothing new to your subconscious mind. You know, it's just bringing that to the forefront of like, oh, yeah, I do do that, you know, or I do notice that or, you know, hopefully you do follow your intuition. And it's like, you know, you've already downloaded this stuff, but but it is practiced skills is the thing because we are so dominated by our conscious intentions. And one of the things that you mentioned in there was that MIT study where they were, uh, they took people pitching for venture capitalists to get some money for their, their projects, whatever it was. And the people... They did not need the MIT, the people that were researching or observing, they did not need audio in order to see whether the pitch was successful or not, which I just thought that was just such a, a really cool, cool thing. Um, I'm curious, something that I, another thing that I'll try to do before like going on stage or something like that is I'll try to develop momentum before I come out. Right. So that kind of leads into like the ceremonies and all that stuff. But putting putting myself into that state of, you know, I'm a winner. You know, I'm, I, I am success. I am nailing this. I got this. Like I'm handling it like, woo, you know, and then come out on the stage already moving. Because once you come out there, if you don't have any momentum, ooh, you know, it's it might be a tough, tough go. Do you have any suggestions with that? Yeah, that's a great point. And it's an important one, because if you're. If you're uh, an actor coming on the stage, uh, the uh, sort of good actors will walk out on stage and then start delivering their lines. 
but a great actor will come from somewhere because a great actor who's already in character, who's already uh, embodying that person that they're playing on stage, will know that when somebody walks into a room, they don't come from nowhere. They don't suddenly spring into the universe uh, without having come from somewhere. They're coming from somewhere. They've been to the dentist or they've been shopping or they've been at work or they've been um, with their mistress or whatever <laughs> whatever they've been doing, right? They've, they've come from somewhere. And so um, the, what, what actors call that is the offstage beat, is that you walk on stage with something already going on. That makes you more interesting. And to your point about um, momentum, if you as a speaker walk on stage and then start speaking, you've got to grab the audience from zero, it's like accelerating from zero to 60, you've got to start right then. But if you walk on stage already excited about the message you're going to come across, you're trying to bring across, then you're going to have that momentum going with you. So yeah, I use slightly different terms, but it's exactly the same ideas. You want to come on with the emotion already engaged so that you hit the audience with that high level of energy, not walk out there and then stand there with nothing going on and then say, Okay, let's get started. Hey, it's great to be here. You know that that kind of thing just looks weird. It doesn't. It doesn't look real, right? And then, as far as coming onto stage, you know, and I think that speaking to a large group of people and speaking to an individual, they're very similar, and then they're also very different in a lot of ways as well. Um, but they're very similar in the sense that you want to create rapport with that individual. You want to create rapport with that group. You know, and when we look at like one individual, in a sense, we are looking at, you know, an, an organism. You know, we're looking at their past and their, their, their thoughts. And, you know, it's, it's this, this orchestra that we're speaking to. And it can go any which direction. And so to be able to perceive like how they're feeling about what you're saying and navigate through, maybe I need to mirror this person more. Maybe I need to align with this person, which are some terms that you use in, in the book. Mm -hmm. um, but one of the big things is just really making sure that you are speaking you know, to your audience or, or maybe even like with your audience. Um, is there any way, one of the things you, you, you say in there is that when, with, with politicians, you know, oftentimes politicians are really good at this. That's why they get voted for, um, mm -hmm. you know, it's like they make everyone feel special. You know, it's like you get done. It's like, wow, it's like they were talking just to me and everyone's like, yeah, me too. They're like, how, how do, how do we get that? Because that's, I don't think that's something you just learn in a day. Yeah, that, that takes a lot of work, and there are politicians, as you say, who are very good at it from years of practice. Uh, Bill Clinton is an example that everybody I know who's met Bill Clinton talks about that kind of charisma uh, and that kind of uh, ability to focus on just them for those few seconds so that they feel uh, like it's a genuine deep exchange unlike one they often have. Uh, Bill didn't start out knowing how to do that. He honed that technique over years and it's a couple of things first of all it's focus first of all he's trained himself to when he's talking to you he's just talking to you he's not thinking about the next person or the person he just finished with he's 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 talking to you so he's focused in that sense and then he's also emotionally focused he's not it, on days when he's on, he's not doing the to-do list in his head. And that's the big mistake that most of us make when we go on stage uh, or in a conversation or a job interview or any other important meeting like that. We're thinking about so many things that we're not just focused on that particular interview or that particular speech, something that we're trying to 
the focus on what we're trying to get out of that situation. And so we, we show up a little scattered. We show up a little less than charismatic because charisma is not mysterious. Uh, charisma, people think of it as, as magic, something that Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie have and the rest of us don't. But it's, there's nothing magic about it. Everybody is charismatic at points in their life because what charisma is is emotional focus. And so everybody's had a moment when they've come home from school at age eight or something and they're really excited because they had a wonderful day, they won a prize. Or maybe they had a terrible day and somebody beat them up on the playground and they're feeling tragic about it, right? We're focused and right away our loved ones pick up on that and say, oh, what happened? Because they can see we're brimming over with that bad news or that good news. Yeah, That's charisma. And that's how we come across it effortlessly and without even trying to. It's a little harder to manufacture it for a stage appearance, but that's what actors uh, and Hollywood celebrities learn how to do. And Bill Clinton, politicians, learn how to do. They learn how to focus on the emotion for that particular moment. And just to put everything else aside and say, wow, it's really cool to be here. I'm going to make the most of this moment. And when I'm done, then I'm going to go collapse in the uh, green room afterwards. Right. Yeah, I love that quote from you. Charisma is focused emotion. I think that really is, is really great. It's summing it up. You know, and like one of the things that you mentioned there as well is not being overindulgent or, you know, over embellishing with your, with your emotions. Cause that can be kind of weird and annoying. You know, it's like, if you come out and you're like crying on stage, it's like, great, you got them. You nailed emotions, you know, but it might be a bit much. You right. know, it's, it's, <laughs> you know, I'm curious, you know, is there some way to, or is there some kind of like feedback or guidance as far as like, you know, how do we tap into enough emotions? And I think that's the big one. That's the thing that's the most challenging for people and not go overboard with it as well. You know, it's, that's fascinating, that question, because um, I get asked that a lot. And 90% of the people that I work with and, and everyday people, too, the issue is not going big enough. There is a small percentage of people who, if you give them the chance, they'll go too big, and then you'll say, wait, pull back. That's, I would say that's a nice problem to have. Yeah. Uh, g- give me somebody who's too big. It's easy to tone them down. But for most people, it's giving themselves permission to experience that emotion and go big enough because most of us feel self-conscious and shy in these situations, and we don't feel confident enough to, to uh, have that big emotion. So it's just uh, you're right. You can go too big, but it's it's a rare problem. As I say, vast majority of people, it, they're they're too small. And I play this uh, game. This is an old actor's exercise uh, that I learned back in the day when I was training to be an actor, which is uh, the, called the happy sad exercise. And I'll do this with clients where you deliver. A, you've got a few lines in their case, a speech, and they're delivering the speech. And I'll say, "Go happy," and and they're supposed to do it as big and happy as as excited as they can without changing the words. They're just supposed to keep talking and suddenly look really happy. And as soon as I believe they're happy, then I'll shout out sad. And then they're supposed to go really sad and tragic. And, oh, this is breaking my heart to have to do this, but I've got to keep talking here. You know, they'll go sad. And then when I see that, I'll shout happy. And they'll keep switching back and forth. And they'll afterwards will say, what was that like? And they'll report, oh, my God, I felt really stupid. It was so big and so tragic. But if you show them videotape of it, they'll go, oh, that wasn't so over the top at all. Right. Yeah, I have a video that I did is really similar. It's, it's called How to Be Confident in Seconds on YouTube. 
And uh, same thing, you know, it's like, except I'm taking on more focusing on the body language, but as yeah. well, thinking about your voice is a big thing, you know, but you can change your, the, your perception yourself. And I've mentioned this on the show before, you know, they've done studies with this. We're actually standing upright and I haven't seen the study for voice, but if it's not out there yet, it will be soon. And if it's not out there soon, I'm going to do it because, you know, I know your voice, your tonality has such a huge impact on the way that you feel, you know, sure. and, and it's like, you can immediately exactly what you just did. Like, I feel really good right now. Liar. You know, <laughs> I know you're lying, yeah. you know, and your biology knows that you're lying as well, you know? And, um, yeah, I think it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's such an interesting thing to be able to tinker with that. I'm curious with, um, as far as like actual information for people, um, handshakes, I think is something that people end up maybe messing up oftentimes, you know, and I've been guilty of doing like the dead fish handshake before. I'm like, Oh did I just give that person a dead fish handshake? <laughs> it's like, it's not okay. You know, is, is there some kind of tips or tricks or things that we can really be able to nail handshaking with people, kind of that initial contact? Yeah, the, the whole context around the handshake is important too. So uh, it's not just the handshake per se. Yeah, you want that to be not too dead fishy and not over the top squeezing the life out of them, breaking their bones either, somewhere in between. All right, so that's, you get that part down. But the, the, the real human connection happens with the face and the emotions in the face and the eyes. So uh, at the time you shake the hand, you want to make eye contact. And then if you get into the subtleties, if you're shaking hands with somebody, watch what's going on with the other hand, right? Because uh, sometimes I have literally shaken hands with people whose other hand was in the form of a fist, and they were pretending to be friendly and open with the handshake and the eyes, but the other hand clearly showed some tension. So uh, there's a whole context of a meeting with somebody where uh, what you need to be thinking about is being open and beginning to establish trust with that person, and that involves um, a whole lot more than just the hand. So the hand is important, but the, the eyes, the face, what you do with uh, um, your whole torso in terms of being open, what you do with the second hand, the other hand is important too. Right. And then along with that, so you're kind of hitting that uh, mirroring, you know, and this is like a, a neurolinguistic programming technique as well, where you're, you're trying to start to kind of like acquaint yourself to the other individual's body positioning. I'm curious with that, how, at what point do you decide to kind of like lead someone in your body positioning, you know, and what point do you decide, do you decide to mirror them? You know, how do we, how do we know, you know, is it, is it, okay, they're crossing their legs. I'm going to cross my legs. What if I would prefer to, you know, bring my arms back behind the chair, you know, like how do we kind of have that subtle conversation? Yeah, so that's a great way to think about it as a conversation, and I talk about it in the book as uh, 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 every communication is two conversations. On the one hand, it's the content, it's the words we exchange. On the other hand, it's the body language. And so if you think about that as two ongoing conversations, then it's really helpful to realize that everything we do with our body exchanges information with the other person that we're talking to at the same time. So. Uh, you want to think about your words, but you also want to think about 
how's my body coming across? And so if you're meeting somebody for the first time, you want to spend a few minutes probably mirroring them to establish trust with them to show, hey, I'm, I'm like you or, or we've got something in common. Um, and then after you've done that for a few minutes, then you might think about leading, adding a suggestion, changing your body language to something that you're more comfortable with or that you'd like to try out and just see if they follow you. Because if they follow you, then you know you've established that trust. So it's a it's a conversation. It's it, it's like the kind of words you exchange. Do you do you like chocolate? Yeah, I like chocolate. You know, you have a, you have a conversation which you find out what the other person's interests are. The body language is doing the same thing. It's saying, do we are we sharing this position? Are we in the same position? Okay, so we've established that. Now let's try a different one. And it's, it's at a very simple level, but it's the same kind of ex- exchange of information that happens with our words, happens with our bodies. I'm curious for you. So you do presentations on how to do presentations. I assume at some point there's got to be some degree, maybe not anymore, but there had to have been a moment where John Lee Dumas calls it, calls it imposter syndrome, you know, where people, even if you got the talent, even if you got the licks, you're, you know, you are like above and ahead and beyond anybody else out there. You know, we all deal with the, you know, those demons on our shoulder that like, you know, who am I to tell people about how to do, you know, whatever it is that they're doing. And in your case, it's a special, it would even be even more challenging, I think, because you're telling people how to do a presentation. Yeah. <laughs> have you ever, have you ever bombed? Yeah, it's a great it's a great question. Unfortunately, <laughs> the answer is yes, absolutely. <laughs> the, uh, my favorite story of that is uh, I was I was giving a speech um, to a very nice group of people. I was scheduled to go after Dr. Ruth, and I don't know if you've heard of Dr. Ruth, but she's a sex counselor, mm-hmm. and she's very funny. She's a Holocaust survivor. She's got a great sense of humor. She's a powerhouse. She's about four foot tall. She's amazing. And I really, I'd never heard her speak before, and I really wanted to hear her speak. So I was late to my own talk. That was my first mistake because I was hearing all of Dr. Ruth, and I was in a separate room. I had to go running over. So I arrived at my own talk a few minutes late, audience sitting there wondering where the heck I was. I'm out of breath. And for the first minute or two as I'm starting to speak, Apparently, I was uh, um, uh, um, uh, um, an awful lot. And I I just say I was catching my breath, but that's my excuse. Um, What happened was a woman in the front row raised her hand and said, uh, Dr. Morgan, do you call yourself an expert in public speaking? (laughs) And I said, "Uh, yeah, (laughs) suddenly very worried. And she said, I've counted 16 ums in the first two minutes. If you can't even speak properly, how can you call yourself an expert in public speaking? Well, you know, I could see the whole talk going down the drain at that moment. And so what I did was, and by the way, this is a great tip for any of you, uh, uh, any of your listeners who wonder what to do in this situation as a public speaker when things go horribly wrong, is don't try to own the problem yourself. So what I did was I turned it over to the audience always get the audience in on it at that point because they will be on your side. They want you to succeed. And so I said, I turned to the audience and I said, did anybody else besides our charming woman sitting in the front row who I'm going to murder after the show is over? Uh, (laughs) I didn't say that part out loud, but uh, uh, this charming woman here, anybody else um, noticed that problem? Anybody else bothered by my ums? 
And the whole audience said, no, you're doing fine. Keep going. And so then at that point, she was she was out of the picture. She couldn't complain anymore because the rest of the audience had voted her down. Mm. Um, and the, the truth of that kind of umming, by the way, is that it's only a problem if it gets to be so much that most of the audience finds it a hindrance to communication. People will tolerate a surprising amount of uh, verbal slips and that kind of thing more than you'd expect. But still, you don't want to you don't want to trade on their on the audience's good feelings any more than you have to. But in that case, uh, uh, I turned it over to the audience and so salvaged the situation. But that was uh, one of my worst moments. And you're absolutely right. Is I'm standing up there claiming to know something about public speaking. I can't make <laughs> the most obvious mistake of all there, which is the ums, uh, according to this woman. Uh, so that was that was not a good moment for me. <laughs> right. You know, I think along with that as well. You know, I met, may or may not. You may well may may or may not disagree with this. Uh, but that may be a, a good time to show you know, your humanness, you know, or that is, it could be an opportunity of kind of like expressing that emotion of like, you know, I'm not saying you need to tell the, tell the crowd you're having a rough time. Uh, but you know, being open with that, like, yeah, you know what, like I am a human, you know, and I am up here and like, I had my day and this is like, here I am, you know, don't, I, I probably prefer not to be here right now, honestly, <laughs> you know? but here I am, you know, we're in this thing together. You know, I think that people really, they can align with that, like, yeah, this, he, he's, a, he's a guy, you know, and he puts all his work and his time into this thing, and he's presenting this for us, you know, but he's not some, like, presentation robot that does everything perfect, you know, having those moments, I think, actually can add to your degree of humanness, uh, but then yeah. along with that, well, actually, along with that, how do you recover from that? Because I've had this before where I've, I wouldn't call it bombed, but I was very much not satisfied with my performance, you could say. And it, uh, it affects me, <laughs> you know, like, how do you come back from that? Do you mean, how do you come back from that in the moment, in no, the performance no, no. Afterwards. or afterwards? Yeah. How do you, yeah. how do you just, you know, be like, you know what, I, I can do this. I'm going to do it better as opposed to be like, I'm not cut out for this. <laughs> yeah. That's brutal. That is very hard. And, and that's something I work with, with my clients a lot on is the, is that cycle because you get the adrenaline coursing through your system to get you up for the talk uh, and you've got that uh, people call nervousness but it's really the adrenaline fight or flight syndrome that's going on and so you get totally wired totally pumped for a performance or for a speech or whatever it is uh, and then afterwards that you've got to come down you've got to crash and if you Add to that, on top of that, the fear that you've done a bad performance or that it didn't go as well as you want. That is a brutal time there because you're physically low, you're emotionally low. All the adrenaline that you had, it's yin and yang. You, you know, you, you've, you've taken a huge amount of energy from the universe. You've got to give it back. Um, and, and so you're at a really low point. At that point, and this is the only advice I can give, it's tough. This is the only advice I can give people is don't think about it then. Put it out of your mind. Do not beat yourself up until you've finished that adrenaline cycle because however long it takes, for some people it's longer than others, but 48 hours afterwards you'll be back to your normal self. Then you can do a rational critique 
right afterwards, you can't be rational about it, and you'll just beat up on yourself, and and it's not it's not good. So uh, yeah, I would say the only the, the only thing I can coach there is to wait, force yourself to wait. Do not be critical about anything that happened during a performance until you're completely through the adrenaline cycle, um, and then a day or two later, three days later, a week later, whatever it takes. At that point, then rationally, you can look at your performance and decide what was good about it and what was bad about it. But in the moment, right afterwards, it's it's brutal. How about videotaping yourself in a performance and just weirdly by yourself, like I do sometimes? <laughs> <laughs> you know, do you ever do you ever record your performance and, and watch it and see like, oh, that part five minutes in is not okay. Do you do that? Yeah, uh, that's a hugely uh, beneficial way to learn about how you're doing and, and very... Uh, very tough uh, for both clients and myself, uh, but uh, we—it's very important to keep videotaping yourself and review it. And force yourself to do it if you're all serious about improving in the craft of public speaking. Uh, we have this enormous gift now, this technological gift, which is videotape, and so we, we're crazy not to use it. it it's tough. It, yeah. It's not good to see yourself sometimes in the moment. You, because people are imperfect. Nobody has a perfect performance, um, and you tend to remember uh, the best parts of a performance and forget the worst parts. Uh, and so it's tough to see the whole thing on video, but it's very useful. It's very good training. Sure. Yeah, I think it's, it's interesting that, I don't know if we can call it a taboo, but definitely a discomfort around looking at yourself or people knowing that you are looking at yourself. You know, so it's like if you're out in public and, you know, you might see like a reflection or whatever like that, people tend to want to see what's happening. <laughs> you know, get, like cop a look of like, oh, all right. Oh, my hair. Oh, my gosh. You know, I have, a, you know, something in my teeth or whatever it is. You know, mm -hmm. but then when people are around, it's like I wasn't looking at myself, I swear. You know, it's very, very interesting that there's almost like this shame around being curious of what you're doing. And I think that it's, it's in the favor of people's development to let that go. You know, and it's like, it's okay. You know, a lot of real, so I do, I do body work, you know, I do like movement coaching and movement re-education with people, you know? And so, you know, Feldenkrais technique and Alexander technique, a lot of this stuff came from, you know, weird guys looking at themselves in the mirror and seeing that that's not right. I need to do something about that, you know, but to have that feedback is so, so crucial, I think. You know, I yeah, think you've, you've got to get through the self-consciousness and beyond to the other side and get over that. You're right. That that kind of basic self-consciousness is, uh, is no help at all. It, or, uh, that feeling that uh, it's, there's, it's shameful to watch yourself or it's shameful to be analytical about yourself or something like that. That's you got to get through that because uh, anybody who's going to be a public speaker has to develop some awareness of where they are in space and get over that shame. And I think most of those messages actually come from families, from parents, from um, from uh, memories of the past, the th times you were shamed in the schoolyard or that kind of thing. And so it's time to grow up and let those go and just get on with who you are. You know, the, the, the thing about public speaking is we're just human beings like any other walk of life. We're going to be good at some things and not so good at other things. And, and it's just allowing yourself to be human and authentic that's, uh, that's uh, the important thing in the end. Right. Yeah. One of the things, and you didn't say it just like this at all. I forget what the exact quote was, but it was mm -hmm. something along the lines of, you know, we're all in the process of self-creation. You know, it's like nobody's done. You know, it's, it's every day we're, we're adding on these layers, adding on these layers, adding on these layers, you know, and it's like, 
I think it's to embrace that. I think that's the fastest track to really get development is recognize like, dude, you're not done. You know, like those are the people that you need to not hang around are the people that think they have all the answers. You know, yes. that is, that is insecurity, you know? Right. And so to be able to go into that constant student role of everything, you know, student of education, student of how I move, student of how I breathe, all of that. I think that's the fastest way to learn kind of side note. Um, I'm curious with diffusing arguments, how do we diffuse an argument without pissing somebody off more? <laughs> you know, it's like, I think if someone's screaming at you and you're like, I'm going to mirror you, you know, and like you, you, that could potentially put them like, are you mocking me right now? <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> how do we, how do we do that? Skillfully, tactfully. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very dependent on the situation, of course, but basically, what we tend to do when somebody's yelling at us or they're having an argument is we tend to get defensive. And so our body language gets self-protective. We'll start closing, holding our hands up in front in various ways of our stomachs or, or uh, bodies to defend ourselves. And so going open is the first thing. The second thing, and this is even harder to do, is to align yourself with the angry person. So rather than confronting them face to face, turn so that you're facing the same direction. Uh, because as soon as you do that, you diffuse the situation slightly. We're no longer confronting each other. We're no longer staring at each other. What we're doing is we're looking at in the same direction. And weirdly, um, when uh, police uh, do this with uh, criminal suspects, the confession rate goes shooting up. Hmm. So uh, it's just a way of, of diffusing the tension in the situation and, and allowing people to feel more comfortable with you. And so have you ever been in that situation where you felt like, you know, say a person wants to create space from you, you know, and they're like, they're like really fuming, you know, and could that potentially be confused as almost like you are, you know, encroaching on their, their space, you know, as you're starting to like, we're looking at each other and now all of a sudden I'm turning 180 degrees and floating towards you. <laughs> well, yeah, you have to be very aware in any situation like that where there's tension. You have to be very aware of the distance between you. We humans are very sensitive about either increasing or decreasing the space between us. And there are a series of barriers. So there's uh, uh, in Western culture, zero to 18 inches is intimate space. So as soon as I cross that 18 inch barrier, if I'm coming closer than 18 inches to you, in the Western world, it's it's less in Asian and Mediterranean cultures, but in Western culture, it's 18 inches. As soon as I'm crossing that barrier, then I'm getting into your intimate space. That's a huge raising of the ante from 18 inches to about four feet, which is the handshake distance, which is friendly space, personal space, but not intimate. Um, and so, one of the things you need to be do uh, need to be very careful of need to be doing is being aware of that barrier, not crossing that barrier. If somebody, if you're having an argument with somebody, the tendency is to, for them to get in your face and shout at you, you know, and get too close. And so it's good to back off, back down a little bit, allow some space, but be very careful about whether you're moving toward them or away from them. Right. One of the things, again, that I find, I mean, I find all this stuff so interesting, so you're probably just like, well, Aaron, you find a lot of things interesting. <laughs> but I find it, it really, really intriguing when, you know, when you first meet someone, I think that, I don't know exactly how many seconds, you probably do, but you know what, like the average time it takes for us to determine, to determine one of three things, either they are a friend, they are a foe, or they are a potential sexual partner. 
You know, it's like, should I eat this person? Are you a part of my tribe or should we create babies? You know, and it's like, we figure that out really, really quick. You know, and then from there, it's very, very strange how we end up adding, you know, personality traits where we kind of pick out those aspects from the individual that relate to our original perception of them. Does that make sense? Kind yeah, of, it does. Kind of it's like very true. It's, it's within about 30 seconds we make that decision, as you say. Uh, it's very fast um, and very basic. And then uh, we tend to, you're absolutely right, we tend to select information about that person that confirms that initial judgment. It's quite difficult to change that initial judgment. If we decide that somebody's a friend, then they tend to stay friends until something really horrible throws that off track. Or if we decide they're a foe, it's hard to to uh, re-establish uh, um, friendship. Uh, it takes a lot of work. So uh, you're right. We tend to be very selective um, about the information uh, uh, that we take in about somebody. But when you think about it, that's because, I mean, we are bombarded with way too much information all the time. And I'm not talking about 24-7 Facebook, Twitter at this point. I mean, there's all that too. But just in terms of our visual field, we get more information in all the time than we can possibly analyze. And so um, what we're, our brains do is, um, is analyze and, and reject information and say that's not important. Um, and, and our brains, in order to keep us from going crazy, are constantly pushing information away from us. We think it's the opposite. We think we're taking in information all the time, but we're actually doing the opposite. We're actually ignoring information as much as we can in order just to stay uh, on track. Right. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine how completely insane we would be if we remembered even a fraction of everything? You know, yeah, if we, we were able to perceive all that information. We, we, we'd be completely insane all the time. Yeah. I mean, just just walking down the street, uh, walk down the street in New York City and think about all the people walking by, the clothes they're wearing, the attitudes they have, uh, the bags they're carrying. You know, the, I mean, just what kind of day it is the the the, uh, the buildings around us the the, the cars I mean, it's just you couldn't even begin to, what you're doing is filtering out so that you can not go crazy right human beings are amazing forgetting machines <laughs> yes. we kind of we kind of forget that it's like how much can you remember it's like man sometimes it's more about the you know the deciphering what to remember you know and a lot of really successful people that is like their their key to success you know it's like what are you what's the what are you most proud of achieving it's like i'm <laughs> the most proud that i'm achieving is all the stuff that i haven't done you know because if you when you start to get into that like momentum role where you're getting a lot of offers for this or that or the other you know being able to focus your energy i think that is one of the the, the most challenging things for people you know it's like priorities priorities being a plural word is almost like an oxymoron. You know, it's like we should have <laughs> priority. That's <true. laughs> yeah, that's true. You know, and that's one, a of good the, point. one of the things I'm, I'm curious with uh, with you is with the when we decide someone's a sexual partner, a friend, or a foe. You know, this happens a lot between men and women, where there's like that slippery slope of the friend zone. You know, where it's like I'm really into this girl. You know, but like. You know, I've waited too long to make a move or whatever. Now we're in the friend zone. You know, how how do we approach someone if they are, you know, a potential sexual partner versus someone that is, uh, you know, we want to eat them <laughs> or something else? 
Well, I'm the I'm the last person that should be giving uh, uh, relationship coaching. That's not my field of expertise. But uh, basically, uh, the same things that create uh, positive feelings between people on the friendship level uh, create connection and trust. And then what you do is raise the ante from there um, if, it, if it's going to become a romantic uh, relationship as opposed to just a friendly one. Um, and I talk in the book actually about things you, you can do with your body to uh, shift um, and to suggest the shift in, in the relationship. But uh, uh, it's difficult to talk about on a podcast because uh, we don't have illustration here. But basically what we're talking about is um, as you close distance uh, between people, uh, you start to raise the ante on them. And so one of the, I mentioned that barrier of 18 inches in Western culture. If you go past that barrier, then you're in intimate space um, and you change the dynamic of the conversation. And you'll know right in that moment, if the other person is not thinking along the same lines, they'll rear back. They'll they'll pull their head back, back into the safe zone of personal space rather than going into intimate space. So that's that's one thing to think about. Completely selfish question. Uh, so you can see me on the video and mm. you hear my voice. Um, would you perceive me as friend, foe, or sexual partner? And then as well, is what's, how could you perhaps like break down the way that I'm communicating with you? Am I doing an okay job? Are you in the back of your head like, who is this guy? You know, is it, what's, what, are, what are your thoughts on, you know, as far as like actual experience right now? Well, that's... Uh, that's an interesting question because, uh, uh, first of all, we're not in the same space together. And it's a good thing to remember that virtual space is not the same thing as physical presence. Um, we tend to analyze the signals of virtual space. So you're on a screen for me, I'm on a screen for you. We tend to analyze those as if they were the same as interpersonal space. Um, and so uh, we we try to use signals and make them equivalent as they would be if we were in personal, actually in the same room together. Um, and so with that caveat, I would say you come across as very open on the screen. And so that's a good sign, a good thing that your ability to connect with people is probably pretty strong. Um, I would, uh, but it would be interesting to see if we were in the same space, then I'd have a much richer sense of, uh, of how you use interpersonal space um, that I don't get from the screen. Because remember, on the screen, you, you may be moving back and forth, but to me, the screen hasn't moved. So you still look like you're in the same position relative to me on the screen, right? So it's different. Yeah, right. It's uh, you, you can move around on the screen, but it's, it's different. That's something that's very important for people to remember, too. By the way, in this virtual world, a whole lot of our working life is spent in the virtual world, um, and uh, uh, we we tend to think that that's the same as being present, and it's not. The, what we're looking at, you and I are both looking at a two-dimensional two representation of our three-dimensional space. And so that's, a, that's different. It's, it's as different uh, as uh, a photograph is from a, a movie, right? Yeah. Um, a movie is different from real real life, if you will. So right. it's just good to keep in mind that those aren't the same thing. Right. That I'm reading cues in a different way than I would if we were there in the same in the same room. Yeah, and along with that, I think that you know this this day and age, we end up having a lot 
of uh, a lot more Skype calls, a lot more, you know, virtual chats, you know, it's like we're, you know, businesses, mine included, are run via virtual chats. Right. You know? And like, it's, I think it's really important that we kind of start to learn etiquette along that. You know, one of the things that I'll do, and you can maybe sometimes see, I mean, my hands are like all over mm. the place, man. When I talk to people, even on the telephone, I make sure that my hands are up and I'm blah, 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 blah. It's not so much like I'm intentionally doing that to try and get the most out. It's just, it's just a natural feeling. Another thing is smiling. You know, if yeah. you're talking on the phone, you got to smile, man. If you are, you know, you think that you can hide your crummy physical state because you're on the phone, you, can. you are you're way right. off. You know? Yeah, when just smiling changes the length of your vocal cords, and we can hear a smile in the voice. That's that's a very that's a great example. Um, but you're absolutely right. I tell people when you're on the when you're doing a radio show or you're doing a podcast, always stand up. Don't sit down to do it, right? Because sitting down crushes your lungs in a way you can't get proper air, you can't get good voice, so you get you got less energy, and then you don't understand why didn't I come across well in that interview? Well, maybe it's because your voice couldn't handle the, the load. So yeah, you got to stand up. You're right. You got to let your hands wave around. You got to you got to be fully present physically, even though you're not there in the room. And not only that, but you know something that I I, I mention a lot is your biology is always, always listening to your performance, you know, to the way that you carry yourself, to the way your tonality, your biology is always listening, you know, and so many people, you know, we think that we, it's like the compound effect, you know, we think that, oh, I'll just get through this eight hours of suck, you know, at the office or whatever, and then I'll go express myself when I get done. It's like false, man. You're going to get done with that and be washed up because you spent the whole day dousing yourself with these crummy hormones that say, I'm a loser. Yeah, that's that's really true. It's really powerful. Yeah, that we think our minds tell our bodies what to do and how we feel, but it's the other way around. Our bodies actually tell us how, what we're thinking and, and how we feel. Right. And so if you don't allow the body to be happy, to be, uh, to stand up straight, to be expressive, then you're absolutely right. It, it's uh, it's going to kill you. Yeah. It's going to kill you. Yeah. Along with that, we have just about five minutes left here or so. So I got a couple, couple crucial questions. Um, tonality of voice. I think that's, you know, I happen to be I got kind of lucky, I think, in that naturally I have a pretty low voice, you know, and some people might, might be out there thinking like, Aaron, I find your voice incredibly annoying. <laughs> but yeah. from what your book says, you know, having that lower voice, having undertones and overtones, I believe is the terminology, mm-hmm. uh, tends to be more effective with communicating ideas, tends to be more effective with activating that right hemisphere of the brain, which is more responsible for emotions, nonlinear thought, kind of more getting into like the heart and soul of things versus like the more linear left side of the brain. What about that? You know, what about somebody that has a really high voice and that's just their natural voice? Are they ever going to be successful or what do they they do? Yeah, is it all over for them? Uh, The the (laughs) thing to think about is your own personal range and just to make sure that you're operating at the bottom end of your range because then you're going to put out as... um, as strong undertones as possible and that will give your voice the resonance that it needs and so yeah it is true that all the all the studies show that people that men with uh, with the lower voices tend to get paid more money and become ceo more often than people who are not but the 
the mistake you make then is if you try to compensate for that and to push your voice lower so it goes down at the bottom end of your range and it's but it's too low or it's in the back of your throat right it sounds like this then uh, then you're actually going to undercut your authority so it's about finding the right place in your range so your voice is as rich as it possibly can be um, and everybody can work on making their voices stronger when you think about the voices we reward yes we like deep voices like James Earl Jones right we think those voices are great but we also like really rich expressive uh, and we're just using men as an example here, but the same thing holds true with women. We like really rich, expressive tenor voices. So, um, in the we pay in in the singing world, we pay tenors a whole lot more than we play, pay baritones and basses, because the uh, the tenor voice can express uh, a pitch of emotion uh, more powerfully than the than the bass voice uh, in the way we in the way we hear it. And so Luciano Pavarotti and uh, Placido Domingo and all those others, they're, uh, there's, it's no accident that they're tenors, not basses. So there's room for all voices to be powerful. Yeah. Just to play devil's advocate with all this, because I kind of already have my opinion on this, but do you get much backlash of like, you're creating artificial people, you know, people, everyone should just express themselves and just like be mm -hmm. their natural state and like adding these other layers of confidence or whatever. If you're not really feeling that way, it's a lie. You know, like, what do you say to people that feel like you should just always be genuine? That's it. Yeah, I think you should always be genuine. I completely believe that. And I also think you should be your best genuine self, right. not your worst one. And so would you go to a job interview wearing a T-shirt and uh, torn blue jeans? Well, I mean, you might if it were a coding uh, job for uh, some internet startup, I, I guess. But um, for most people, they'd say, no, I'd put on my best clothes and, and I'd, I'd – uh, take a shower and I get a good night's sleep and I, I go cleaned up ready for that interview because otherwise I'm not showing up as my best self. Why would I tie one hand behind my back? Why would I shoot myself in the foot and then go try to do something? You wouldn't do it. So this is about showing up as your best self. It's about learning the things that get in your way as a communicator and removing them so that you can be your true, authentic, strongest, best self. That's the way I think of it. Right. Yeah. And so my response with that as well is like, it's kind of like you, you had mentioned uh, in the book is like, we are in a constant state of evolution, you know? And so it's like, just because, just where you're at right now, say you're sad or you're, you know, you're, you're like a really boring personality or whatever it is. Like that's, that's, <laughs> that's fine. That's beautiful. You know, but it may exactly what you're saying. It may not be necessarily like your, your best expression of you, right? you know, so that I would, I would challenge that and say like, I just want you to always be exploring like, what is, what is, what is your ideal expression of yourself? Cause we're forming that, you know, everything that we do and say it's habituated, you know? So if you've been habituated in the path of being just this low monotone, I don't really care. I'm wearing sweat, which I'm actually wearing, I'm wearing sweatpants right now, uh, <laughs> you know, but it's like, you're always in that, that state. Um, you will habituate that. And then when the time comes that you might give a dang, you're not going to be able to show up. You that's, know, right. that's, that's kind of my perception on that. Um, so right. we're getting, getting to the end here. I know you have a really radical online course coming up. You have, I, I know for sure the, um, how do you call the book? I just finished Power Cues. Power Cues. Yeah. Power Cues. That was an awesome book. You have a couple other books as well that I haven't gotten to yet, but I, I can't wait to get to them. Um, can you tell us a little bit like where to find you? Tell us about the online course. Tell us about the books, all that. Yep. Great. Thanks. So uh, we're on, we're on the, uh, 
the internet at publicwords.com. So that's the place to go uh, for a whole lot of free stuff. The, the blog is just packed with all kinds of information uh, about uh, how to communicate better, body language, public speaking, storytelling, all those things. Uh, and then uh, there are also, if you want to go deeper, then there are the books you can buy, and those are listed on there, as well as our new online course on how to create a great, a great presentation called Presentation Prep. 10 Steps to Persuasive Storytelling. I don't know how you could resist that. So uh, it's all there on publicwords.com, and thanks. Cool. I'm signing up right now just from that presentation. Um, one thing I ask everyone on the way out is if you could go back to any age, you could pick the age and give yourself any message, a uh, little short message, what would you tell yourself and what age would it be? And you can't cop out and say, everything is perfect, I love my mistakes, blah, blah, blah. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I... Uh, uh, when I was uh, uh, 19, I took an acting course um, with a rather famous uh, Broadway act at the time Broadway actor. He was a good teacher, uh, and I was completely clueless. I was supposed to be playing a soldier. So 19, I'm supposed to be playing a soldier, and anybody who's seen any military person ever knows that they stand at attention. They've obviously been drilled for hours to have that posture. And I was just completely clueless. I showed up on stage and I slouched in my chair. And I was pretending to be this military person in the, in the play. And the director said, cut, stop, wait a minute. He singled me out of all the cast. Nick, what do you, the blankety blank do you think you're doing? You're supposed to be a blankety blank soldier for Christ's sake. And look at you, you're slouching. And, and that was a disastrous moment. If, if I could go back in time, I would go to myself a few hours before that and say, you know, watch some movie, look at pictures of military people, figure out how they stand and go in there and have the proper, uh, proper posture. So self-awareness is uh, almost at any age, but especially at that moment, I would love to have. Awesome, man. Great. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, I can honestly sure. say I, uh, I feel like I have developed myself since reading your book. I feel like it's actually really inspired me and helped me out. So I really appreciate that. And uh, it was a pleasure to get to chat with you, man. Align Podcast. Thank you so much for tuning into the podcast. I greatly appreciate your comments and your shares in iTunes. They determine the ranking and the visibility of the show and they make me smile. So I look forward to reading those guys. Be sure to check out the website, aligntherapy.com. That's A-L-I-G-N therapy.com. On there, you can find my blog. You can find this podcast, more information about the topics and the, and the uh, guests that we've had on the show. You can find hundreds of absolutely free instructional videos on self-care, functional movement, how to get strong, how to get fast, how to get exactly what you want out of your body. You can check out the online coaching where we work, how, work out how to optimize your movement practice so that you can live optimally and pain-free for the rest of your life. As well, be sure to check out the self-care kit where it is as small enough to fit underneath the seat in your car. And it's like a physical therapist, a massage therapist, all wrapped up into one package. I know you guys are going to love the website. I know you guys are going to get a lot of value out of it. And I look forward to hearing your comments. All right. Bye. 
Thank you for listening and remember to join the movement by subscribing to the podcast. If the information has been helpful, please share and leave your comments in iTunes. Aaron personally reads each one and it makes all the work worthwhile. Together, we will make a difference and continue to bring more powerful and inspiring messages to the world. Align Podcast.